Pulse Audio Podcast Network. Part of the Boundless Audio Podcast Network. The weather is finally getting cooler, the leaves are turning colors in weird sporadic patches, and the pumpkin is spicing. Do you know what that means? It means fall is finally fucking here. Thank you, God. This above. is my personal favorite season, not because of pumpkin spice, but just because I it's very beautiful in Minnesota. Like all our trees change colors. The weather is fucking perfect. And yeah, so fall brings with it many, many great things. First, it's Hispanic Heritage Month in the United States. That's celebrated from September 15th to October 15th. I think it's odd that it's not like just well September. I think September 15th is um Independence Day. Mexican Mexican Independence Day. Yeah, but it's specifically in the United States that we celebrate it. So I just yeah. I just find it interesting. I did not look into it. You know what though? I I, I do kind of like how it's like, no, 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 no. We get two months. Right. Like like we it's, it's one of, month. We get half of but each month. yeah. Um, also there's apple picking and cider and then eventually, you know, spooky season, which is also another great season of mine. Um, but we aren't quite to spooky season. So we will continue covering our regularly scheduled women that you probably don't know, but definitely should versus when spooky season truly starts, we'll cover women that you may not even want to know, but we're going to tell you about them anyway. We're going to burden you with the knowledge of some really terrible women. Yeah. Because you know what? Being a feminist means that you acknowledge that not all women are awesome. Just saying. Women can be murderers too, okay? Right. It is no longer a male-dominated field. Okay, it's still super male-dominated. super male-dominated. But I'm just saying. But we'll pull them out. There are some really horrible ladies out there. Yes. But today our ladies are not horrible. But maybe horrible things happen to them. Yes. And I'll just introduce us because I haven't done that yet. Who are we? We are Whining About History, the Women's History Podcast, where we talk about women from history that you probably haven't heard of, but definitely should have, usually while drinking wine, but we're doing kind of a Sunday afternoon recording, so neither of us are drinking wine. I have coffee. Today's episode is sponsored by Coffee. Subway. And you know, Taco Bell. It's, it's, yes, Subway, Taco Bell, and <laughs> Neither caffeine. Neither of which are actually sponsoring and us. And Aleve Sinus and Cold, because I have a sinus headache, and I can feel it behind my left eye, and it fucking sucks. Oh, that sucks. I mean, I'm, I'm over here finally, like, over my cold, but I can yeah. still hear it in my voice. I was actually... Um, and now, now, now it's going to happen because I'm saying something. Usually at least once or twice per year, I have an episode where it's like I lose my voice because I was like coughing yeah. so much. It hasn't happened in a while, which means it's coming. I don't have wood to knock on to knock yeah. on our glass top table. I'm going to knock on my crotch. Knock, knock. <laughs> no, that's that's. That'd be funnier if I had a penis. Yeah. I would be so much funnier if I had a penis. Not true. I mean, true, but I could do so many funny things with my penis. I should just carry around a dildo and like do prop comedy with it. There you go. Yeah. And by the way, I'm Kelly. Oh, yeah. You're Kelly. I'm Emily. Yes. And, uh... You know, you said spooky season hasn't started yet. And for this podcast, I mean, that's true. Is. In my heart, it has been spooky season 
since August. I wore a spooky season shirt yesterday. It was like I Salem broom sales. Salem uh, broomsticks mm-hmm. or something. Yeah. No, I love that. We went apple picking. It was wonderful. It was amazing. And I feel so fall right now. And the coolest thing is uh, we went to this orchard in town that's also a distillery. And they make like apple based spirits that are super fucking good. But they just released a four year barrel aged apple spirit that Which is, is their first ever of this type. Yes, yes. And the distiller Tammy was yeah, up is, is a woman. Yeah. And yeah. She was she, super nice. She fucking signed our bottles. And we each got okay, so like so it because this is the first batch. Like the bottles are all numbered. So I got number seven, which is my favorite number. Like it was like I was on the fence about buying it. And then I was looking through like the three bottles that were out there and one was seven. And I had a a very strong full bodied reaction. People were staring. It was fine. And I'm like, I have to buy this. It was fate. And Kelly's like, oh, I, I, you don't have number five, do you? Because that's Kelly's like, favorite number. No way. And she was like, no, but we have a fifty-five. Tammy went into the fucking back and dug out bottle number fifty-five, which was very and nice signed for it for Kelly. And it was the most amazing thing. And I'm, yeah. I, and they're releasing a, a brandy later this year. And I was like, we'll be back. <laughs> oh God, yes. Or maybe is it is it next year? No, it's this year. They said like the end of September. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, we'll we'll be back, Tammy. We'll be back. We're coming for you in a good way. Yeah, not, not in a, th- a bad, in, not in, in a, a totally way. non-threatening fashion. In a, I want to buy all of your alcohol. And actually, I had some of that last night. The 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 barrel age. Did you? Oh, I had some of the caramel so apple good. latte Ooh. cream from the same place. I also there. had the atomic apple last night, but like I I cracked open my my special signed bottle for the first time and and nice. shared it with Mafella. I know that's what my my husband was like, "Can we drink this?" I'm like, "Yeah, we just keep the bottle after." Yes, yeah, the bottle I can never not have that bottle. I'll be buried with it or exactly. cremated with it. You know, or maybe I'll pass it on to a friend's child, since I don't want any children of my own. Exactly. Yeah. Don't worry. So all my friends out there start having babies so I can gift them empty liquor bottles when I die. <laughs> the collection starts now. We started me young. We started me. God damn it. Oh, my God. Can you imagine? It's like you get an inheritance from someone. And it's an empty liquor bottle. And, and you're, you're just like, like, the fuck was this like owned by someone? Fam- no. No. Why, why did, why did she keep this? Well, because it was bottle number seven. It was signed by the distiller. Is the distiller famous? I don't know. It's Tammy. Like who's Tammy? What? (laughs) Yeah, it'll be great. It's just, okay, well now you just have to keep this empty liquor bottle out of guilt for the rest of your life until you die and pass it on to someone else. And the curse continues. Yay. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Well, off on that chaotic, headachey, caffeinated, sleep deprived note. Yeah. Um should we get started? Yes, my eyeball itches. Ooh. Allergy okay. I love fall it is my favorite season, but the allergies are something else this year. They are kicking my ass. I am just full of histamines. 
just overrun with histamines. All the histamines. Then uh, they're running out my nose and down my throat and in my body, and it's too many goddamn histamines. Yeah, it's not fun. Ugh, histamines are the worst. Why do we have them? Who who invented histamines? Because I want them to pay for their crimes. I doubt it was an invention. It was. It was definitely an invention of the patriarchy. It was made by a horse. The end. All right. Yes. Have you seen the Barbie movie yet? Nope. Okay, we're, we're going to watch it together. We're going to have like a girls night you and watch it together. how many times you've told me we're going to watch it together. Okay, but it's on digital now, so we don't actually have to plan anything. We just have to like get together and watch it. Okay. And we will drink and then we will do a whining about, about the Barbie movie. Okay. And the horses. Okay. It will all make sense. I'm sure it will. So am I going first? Yeah. All right. Cool. 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 I'm definitely ready for this. So t- I, okay, here's the thing. I, I wrote this story a while ago or started writing it a while ago and assumed I would have been drinking while reading it. I am entirely too sober for my story. Dark? It is, oh. but it, I, I thought it was still really important and The way I found out about this woman I thought was really cool. So today I am whining about Diana Ryder. So y'all know that I love a good listicle and movie trivia, especially when the movie was based on historical events. And I read a list the other day that led me to Diana. And while there isn't a lot of information on her, I felt it was important to talk about her as much as I could. So special thanks goes to shtetl.org, which is a Jewish history and cultural database uh, that is currently operated by the Poland Museum of uh, of the History of Polish Jews, There's which Nazis served in this, isn't there? as my primary source. And yes, Kelly has cracked the code. I was like, it's sad. There's, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. It's been a minute since we've had a... Yeah. Had a Nazi story, but God, they're just fucking everywhere. Like goddamn cockroaches. So, Diana Ryder was born on November 7th in 1902 in Drohobich, which my phonetic spelling of note of that to make sure I pronounced it correctly was D R R big O Ho Bitch. Drohobich. Which nice. is now my favorite place. Like, if I ever, if, I, if someone ever asked me where I'm from, I'm just gonna be like, oh, Drohovich, because it's so fucking cool. So, this is actually in modern day Ukraine, but it was a part of Poland at the time. And, like, Poland in general has a super wild history of, like, being All invaded and, you know, being taken over. Like, I think when my, um, when my great grandparents came, to the United States, Poland was actually technically Russia at that time, but like, so she's, she's ethnically Polish, but where she was born is now in, you know, part of modern day Ukraine. Yeah. So I, st- I started to get into it and like, we're talking about Polish <laughs> Kings and I was like, oh my fucking God, I'm, I'm not. Okay, moving on. You were like, the people don't need to know all I this. do not have the mental capacity to go through like the day by day of like, who owned Poland? Who was like taking over Poland at this specific time? Because it was a lot of people yeah. all the fucking time. Anyway, people, all all the people wanted Poland. So many people. I mean, Poland is like so hot right now. 
so hot. It's been so hot for a long time. It's been a hot mess. <laughs> I'm I I have Polish heritage. I say that with the utmost love and respect, but like it it got crazy. So Diana was the youngest of four daughters born to a wealthy Jewish family. Her father, Abraham, was a lawyer, company commander in the Austro-Hungarian army, and the vice mayor of Drohobich, which is what all I want to be now. I want to be the, the anything of Drohobich. I will be the town idiot. I will be the village idiot of Drohobich because I love saying it, and it makes me so happy. Um, her mo- mother, Sophie Heimberg, co-owned a family-run paraffin and paraffin candle factory called Ooh. Dr. E. Ryder Hammerschmidt Heimberg E. Ska. Say it again. Dr. E. Ryder Hammerschmidt Heimberg E. Ska. And the E. Ska, it's Heimberg, little uh, space, little I, space, big S, dash, K-A. That's what it said on shtetl.org, and I am not one to correct them. <laughs> but it, yeah, like, I just, I thought that, I thought the name was really cool. It sounds like a law firm, like the law firm of Dr. E. Ryder Hammerschmidt Heimberg E. Ska. E. Ska. I, yeah, I don't. I like it. I, it's fine. So the children were afforded an education and excelled academically. Diana's older sister, uh, Bronislawa uh, followed in their father's footsteps and became a lawyer working in the tax chamber in Warsaw and Krakow. Hmm. Like, so these kids, like, and like, um, and the Dars, like, they're excelling. And they're, they're they're really, they're really, the family is like really well educated and doing great. The kids are doing great. Everything is great. And like her parents and siblings, Diana was smart as a whip. She pursued a degree in architecture in 1927, graduated from the Faculty of Architecture at the Technical University of Lviv. Women pursuing a university education, let alone one in a STEM field, was still unusual at the time. Uh, So between 1919 and 1930, only 15 women graduated from the same facility um, or faculty, whatever, with Diana being one of them. Yeah. Which is wild. Yeah. Because, like, I know that STEM is still very male-dominated, but it's, like, in that amount of time, there were only 15 graduates who were women. What? That's insane. Yeah. Things have, you know, things things improve. Things do get better. So... Look, uh, bu- 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 sorry, I scrolled too far. So looking for greater opportunities, I told you I'm way too sober for this fucking story. I'm actually more on my game when I'm, when I got a good buzz going. <laughs> so looking for greater opportunities in architecture, Diana moved to Krakow in 1928 and began working for the construction office of the district directorate of public works at the provincial office. <clears throat> Try putting that on a fucking business card. God. Yeah, that was... It was a lot. It was a mouthful. It was a lot. I'm sure they had like a shortened, I don't know if they call it the district or the directorate or just public works or they call it the Provoff, provincial office. Prov-off. I like Provoff. I like Provoff. I dig that. Okay, that, that's what we're calling it now. That is where she works. So Diana was not the first woman to work at the Provoff, but she was the first woman with a technical degree. And like, I just imagine Ooh. a lot of the other women working there were chiefly in clerical roles. Oh, 100% so administrative she was, clerical Yeah, you know, stuff. so she was the first one who had like a technical degree and was doing the, you know, 
the techie shit. Yeah. Whatever, whatever techie shit is required at the Prabov. So we can imagine the obstacles Diana may have faced working in a male-dominated field and as a Jewish woman. And at this time, Jewish people, regardless of gender, were struggling to find employment in the public sector. Poland had passed a variety of anti-Semitic laws, including barring Jews from obtaining business licenses, receiving government bank loans, attending public universities, and working in the public sector. And I got a lot more into that when I covered um, Irina Sendler. Yep. And I, I reference that episode number later in here. So if you're like, what? Irina Sendler? You can go back and find it um but like this is so disappointing because like after world war one you know obviously germany was going through its whole nationalistic like scapegoaty phase yeah but, they um, weren't but poland was doing the same thing and especially you know with with having been conquered and occupied by all these other you know, places, they were the Republic of Poland at this time. And so they're going through this like big nationalistic thing, but also there's a lot of anti-Semitism that is not just culturally prevalent, but it is being written into law. Yeah. And it's really, really scary. And it's kind of like, yeah. And then Germany just came in and it was like, well, I mean, they, they're anti-Semitic too. So like, whatever. Yeah. Like, like, and I'm not Things saying- definitely got worse. Yeah. But it wasn't as dramatic of a change was like as it was with some other countries that were previously not anti-Semitic. Yeah. Well, and Lithuania has a history similar to that, like we talk about when we um when we did the Nazis granddaughter. Um there there is a lot of anti-Semitism going on in Europe. I mean, there there was, there is, it's everywhere. Um, but it's just like really disappointing. I'm like, come on, Poland, be better, do better. Now, granted, there were a lot of people in Poland who were being and doing better, a la Irina Sendler. Um, and Diana, she's she's a bad bitch. I love her. Right, like, she is doing things other people in her position couldn't do. Yeah. So this made Diana's success with the Pravov even more incredible. During her time there, she planned the reconstruction of the Christophsfree, I God, I really should have put more phonetic. I, w- I was, I was really, I was really, I had it with Drohovich and like everything else. I was like, oh, I'll go back and put in the phonetic pronunciation. I did not. Krizistofri Palace, um, which was the seat of the Pravov. Uh, she worked on designs for new buildings, which include submitting a design to a competition for building the Hagenolia Library. An architect magazine described this architecture competition as one of the, quote, most serious and fascinating architectural competitions of reborn Poland. So this kind of reminded me of, um, oh, my God, I I covered her so long ago and I'm blanking on her name. The woman who designed the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. Oh, my gosh. Like She was a Chinese or no, Korean? Korean, I think. Shit. Yeah, please look up her name. But she entered a design competition and won. And that's how her her design was chosen. Um, So this was a similar thing where a bunch of like designers and architects submitted their designs and she submitted hers. And Diane's team took third place. Maya Lin. Maya Lin. That's it. Thank you. 
Um, so there was a cash prize, which is pretty cool. That's always uh, fun. And they won third place. So, like, their design wasn't chosen and executed, but still, that's very impressive. Yeah, third place. That's not bad at all. Oh, God. Out of... And, and like, this was really a part of, you know, they're they're trying to get... They're, they're, like, Poland is really trying to establish its identity at this time because it's reborn Poland. It's the Republic of Poland after World War One, um, And... They're looking for Polish talent, yeah, you know, and so a lot of people are submitting to this, and I thought it was cool. Yeah, to get third place, that's yeah. super cool. But by 1931, the anti-Semitic policies being passed in Poland caught up with Diana. She was let go from her job due to, quote, redundancy of employees without permanent contracts due to the economic crisis, unquote. But I find it very hard to believe that in an increasingly anti-Semitic Poland, that her being Jewish had nothing to do with it. Yeah. In fact, the idea that they wouldn't just say, yeah, you can't fucking work here because we literally made it against the law. The fact they didn't say that is the more surprising part. And it might just be because they knew her. So maybe it was yeah. like her boss in particular. Like maybe that's how it was phrased to her boss. Yeah. And her boss was just like, I'm going to be nicer about it. Yeah. It's, it was, it's just really disappointing. Yeah. Ever adaptable though, Diana got her professional construction license and began working as an independent architect because a lot of those laws, they banned, um, banned Jews from having like a public education or working in like the, the government, but you could still be independent or work for a private business but you couldn't open your own business you couldn't yep you couldn't open your own you couldn't have your own storefront like you couldn't and you couldn't own a house well known enough you can work via word of mouth yeah i suppose but yeah like even um not giving not giving them business licenses or like housing loans like government-backed housing loans which the united states also did that that's part of like why we have such a severe problem with uh, the racial homeownership disparity because the government wouldn't back housing loans, loans for, for black people yeah. and people of color. So I'm just saying Poland, Poland is not unique in this. No. Um, which is incredibly, it'd be so nice if it was like, well, that was just Poland, you know, being shitty. It's like, no, we, we have all engaged in this behavior and it really needs to stop. Anyway, she began working in the studio of Kazimierz, Kuznaski, my grandmother is so pissed off at me right now. She is looking down at me and just like, you dumb bitch. (sighs) Actually, as my, as my, as my Polish grandmother would say, she would call, she would say I was acting like a shit or acting like a bitch. And then when I would yell at her, be like, you can't call me that. She's like, I didn't call you a bitch. I said, you're acting like one. I fucking love that woman, which is why I'm really, I'm, I'm sad. I'm disappointing her so deeply right now. Um, but she started working in the studio as one of 45 architects uh, with her being the only Jewish woman. Because again, her being an architect as a, as a woman is kind of an, an anomaly. It's, yeah. or it's not common. So in 1936, she joined the recently formed Union of Jewish Engineers, which had been founded in response to the increasing struggles of Jewish engineers who were facing... Uh, the struggles that Jewish engineers were facing in regards to obtaining training, employment, and other opportunities. She served on the organizing committee with other well-known architects in Krakow, again, as one of the few women in a male-dominated sphere. And the names of the other well-known architects were in 
like my source, but I'm like, you know, if you're a real architect nerd and you're like, was it with so-and-so you can fucking look it up because this is her story. First of all, this is Diana's story. Second of all, I am too sober to be pronouncing Polish when I forgot to put in the phonetic notes for everything except Drohovich. And there is someone listening who's like, that is not how you say yep. it. God damn you. Stop saying it. <laughs> the one I tried is the one I'm actually fucking up the most. So during her career, Diana designed two residential buildings, which still stand today. And they were designing a Bauhaus style, whatever that means. I know there's a, there's a brewery called Bauhaus in the cities. Nice. Yeah, they make a good hazy IPA, so I'm told. Um, one at 26 Bellini Prasmauskigo uh, Avenue and the other at 16 Palaskowskigo Street. I love you. You know what? Just go. And the only reason I put that in there is because they're still there. If we have any listeners who are like, I fucking know that place or like I live there. Like I want pictures. I just go find it. Take a picture. Make and happy. Yeah, make us happy and give some love to Diana. On September 1st, 1939, Nazi Germany invaded Poland. Quickly, the Nazis began forcing Jewish citizens into ghettos. And we talked about one of the most infamous ghettos, the Warsaw Ghetto in Poland, in episode 117 when I covered Irina Sendler. See, there's the note. I was on top of it in that very specific instance. Jewish citizens were forced into these tightly packed ghettos where disease and starvation were rampant. Like these were really horrible, horrible places. Um, And I go into more detail when I cover, you know, talk about the Warsaw ghetto. And I can only imagine the anxiety that Diana and her Jewish colleagues were experiencing seeing this happening. And while we know the ultimate fate of many who were forced into the ghettos at this time, Diana only had horrifying rumors to go on. And like, like there, there were so many, like there was so much like hearsay, like, oh, I heard that, you know, they're sending people away or people are disappearing or, you know, that, you know, there are all these really horrifying rumors. And I have to yeah. imagine like, it's like, do, do you hear that and go, that's, that's too much. Like, there's no way that's really what's right, like going on. That, that sounds too awful. Yeah. Like it's, it's too insane. It's too extreme, but that's exactly what was going on. Um, it's possible that she tried to flee Poland, but obtaining visas to allied countries was no easy task. And even in an unoccupied country, let alone in Nazi occupied Poland, it cannot be overstated how many people died because of bureaucracy and the unwillingness for other countries to accept refugees. And like when we did uh, our episode on the overture of hope, that was a lot of bureaucracy A lot of bullshit. That killed people. Um, Hedwig Cohn, a revolutionary Jewish physicist who I covered a million years ago in episode eight. Were we ever that young? Was I still like crawling? Could I even walk at that point? No. Like that that blew my mind. But she was living in Poland during the Nazi occupation. She was lucky to escape thanks to more prominent men in her field fighting for her visa. Yep. Like that that. was not easy for her to get out. And she, there were a lot of people who were fighting for her and being like, she needs to get out. We need to get her out. Right. Like she's, she's important. Well, because they were like, prioritizing people who had some kind of like scientific or cultural importance. Yep. But Hedwig, she had scientific and cultural importance, but she was a woman. 
Yep. And so she didn't have the same kind of sway. Yeah. And so she had all these people fighting with her and she's lucky that it worked. Yeah. And I don't know what Diana's, you know, situation might have looked like if she was trying to get out, what that process may have been. But what we know is that Diana wasn't as lucky as Hedwig. She was forced into one of the Krakow ghettos located in the Podgorzy district in 1942. Jews sent to the ghettos in Krakow were forced into labor factories created by the Nazis within the ghettos or outside of them. Among the factories that utilized Jewish forced labor was the German enamelware factory owned by Oskar Schindler. Ever heard of him? Hmm. Is this, that name ring a bell? A little ring-a-ding-ding? <laughs> He's the, he, so Oskar Schindler... Um, he was the one where in seventh grade we had to do a report in English class on a historical figure and then we had to dress up as them and like with our partner have a conversation. Yeah. It's like we're we're all in heaven and we're having a conversation. And my friend Melissa was Jackie O and I was Oscar Schindler. And one of the Which I love. I, I wanted to be a guy. Um, and the Holocaust was always very interesting and I, you know, obviously wasn't going to be a fucking Nazi, although Oscar Schindler was a Nazi, but he like, he, he got his shit together. He was like, Whoa, this is, this is not what I signed up for. Y'all are the fucking worst. But one of the things about him is that he was kind of a womanizer. Like he was married, but it was always like stepping out on his wife. Yep. And you know, Jackie O is like one of the hottest first ladies. So the whole time I'm just like, Hey, Jackie. <laughs> I'm like, damn, girl, you're wearing the hell out of that pillbox hat. Mm. <laughs> I'm a bad person. I can 1000% picture you doing that. Yep. Though. Little 12 year old me being a fucking perv dressed as a man. Yes. So I'm not going to get too into Oscar Schindler because he's such a well-known figure. But basically, he used his factory in the forced Jewish labor force to save as many as 1,200 Jews during the Holocaust. And it's possible that Diana and Oscar tro- crossed paths in his factory uh, because, or because his factory was in the same district as the ghetto that Diana was forced to. And when the ghetto was violently liquidated in March of 1943, she was sent to the Plazo concentration camp where Oscar set up his new factory, uh, where he would make his famous list. Schindler's list. Ever heard of it? Go watch a movie. Maybe not that one. I refuse to watch it because I don't have, I am never ever going to be mentally capable of like watching that I don't think I can do it I don't think I can either um but but it was interesting because actually it was uh the liquidation of this ghetto that Oscar Schindler witnessed it was incredibly violent like the Nazis were rounding everyone up and shooting people in the streets like it was so horrific and that's when he was like oh no like fuck this is what y'all are about no and that's when he really like knuckled down and was like I I I need to do something like I'm gonna try to fuck up their shit as much as possible and also like his factory you know they were they were sabotaging their like the ammunition they were making or things like that so so while imprisoned in Plazow Diana was forced to help with the construction of the guards' barracks, and this may have been because of her expertise in architecture. However, one of the walls of the barracks would collapse. Another prisoner, Joseph Bow, witnessed the following events. 
according to him, quote, I like know what's coming. I know you do. SS officer Hujar, who was the supervisor of the construction, put the blame for the collapse on engineer Diana Reeder, or right, yes, sorry, writer, um, and began to whip her. Ryder Nauna, which is like the, her, the longer yep. form of her name, uh, was a small, thin woman. She fainted after the first blows, but the SS man continued to hit her. Finally, he fired a series of bullets into the pile of bones, rags, and blood as if to make sure that engineer Diana Ryder would not get up again. It's like overly brutal. It's, yeah, it's... It's overkill. It's incredibly cruel. And like, I don't know when this happened, but she's been living in this ghetto, which is already like terrible conditions. She's been subjected to forced labor. And now she's in a concentration camp. I don't know how long she was there, but I can't imagine she was in great physical health when she got there. So like, this man, Joseph, says that, you know, she was a small, thin woman. I'm like, I bet she was malnourished. And, like, this guy, this grown man who's perfectly healthy and has a gun is just beating her mercilessly. And then for something that probably wasn't even her fault. Right. Like, it's it's so awful. And even if it was her fault, that is not a deserved punishment. Oh God, no! I, I mean, none of this, none of this is deserved. The, the whole thing is just really horrible. Um, and I, I did want to include that quote because one, this is from another. This is a quote from another survivor. Yeah. And two, I, for some reason, we need to be reminded how fucking awful Nazis are. This is what they're about. This is their ideology. Right. This is what it leads to. Their whole thing is violence. And this is that kind of violence. So it's very likely that her body was buried in one of the many mass graves at the camp. Obviously, we don't know where or when. When it became clear to the Nazis that the Allies were closing in, they began a mass evacuation of Plazau camp, uh, sending prisoners to other camps such as Auschwitz to be murdered. Um, The last prisoners that were rounded up were sent on a death march to Auschwitz. And if they didn't die on the march, yeah, if they didn't die on the march, they were killed, you know, upon arrival. Um, After the prisoners had been sent to other death camps, the remaining Nazis dismantled the camp and exhumed the bodies from the mass graves and burned them in an attempt to hide the evidence of what they had done. That is extreme digging up these mass graves. Like that's, that's when you know that they knew that what they did was actually wrong. Cause there are some people that are like, you know, and there are some people that are like, oh, the officers didn't know what they were doing. You know, they were following orders in the camps. Yeah. And it's like, yes, some of them probably were. But it's moments like these that it's like some of them knew exactly how bad what they did was. And, and they, they were covered co- it up. Yeah. And actually, one of the reasons that these surviving concentration camps like Auschwitz are so... uh so important is because this is what happened to a lot of those camps. They were dismantled. They were burned. The evidence in all of its forms. Like I, I hadn't heard, I hadn't heard of this kind of thing, like digging up the mass graves and then desecrating the bodies like that as an attempt to hide 
what had happened. And I just want to be very clear. You can't just burn a body like that unless you are working in a crematory. Like, that's not how it works. You can't get the fire hot enough, you dumb sons of bitches. You're just being pieces of shit. Yep. So when the Soviets arrived on January 20th, 1945, there was nothing left but a barren patch of land. Like when we think of the liberation of concentration camps, like I think we think of Auschwitz and the the photos and who was the one woman you covered who took a bunch of those photos of the liberation of like of Auschwitz or Dachau. You, you've covered a few. Um, I know Lee Miller. She was the one in Hitler's bathtub. Yeah, she was the more. But there was the woman who also did the. Um, um, here you. Well, well, I'm looking you, it up. Yeah, you you look it up, but I'm just going to continue with my point. I think those are the images that we think of. You know, obviously they're horrifying, but you know, the allies roll up, these prisoners are there but alive and they're being rescued. But for a you know, but for a lot of people, they were they were moved and killed and then the places were completely dismantled, so there was no one left to rescue, and that's really I think that's what happened to most people and that's very very it's it's just another it's just another element of horror to this whole thing. Yeah. Um so fortunately today there are memorials and a sign to commemorate the lives lost at Plasau, but otherwise the sparsely wooded hills and fields of the former camp, which is now a protected nature preserve, barely betrays what it once was. Also, I didn't put this in my notes, but where they built this camp was formerly like two Jewish cemeteries. Jesus. So the Nazis took two Jewish cemeteries and built a death camp on it where they murdered more Jewish people and buried and then desecrated their bodies further to cover up their literal war crimes. Like, what the fuck? It was Margaret Bork White. That's it. Thank you. Yeah, she was on the ground with them. Mm-hmm. So, legacy. So, at the beginning of the story, I mentioned a listicle on how I heard about Diana. So, yeah. I learned about Diana from a listicle that profiled movie characters based on real people. And a character named after and based on Diana Ryder hmm. was featured in Schindler's List. Which is why I brought up Oscar Schindler, because there, there is a connection there. She was played by Alina Lowenstone. Uh, Diana's character confronts a Amon Goth and Hujar, who is the, the officer yep. who actually in real life committed the murder. Um, as a bridge is being built, she tells them that it's structurally unstable because she's a fucking architect and knows better. And unable to, be, to accept being corrected by a Jew, Goth orders Hujar to shoot her. And like... Um, Amon Goth, he is kind of the, I, I was reading a little into him, and he's really one of the only people who was held accountable for what happened at this specific camp. And he was sentenced, he was tried and sentenced to death. Good. And, you know, he's kind of like one of the primary villain figures in Schindler's List. Um, but I thought it was really interesting that, first of all, I thought it was interesting that they, like, called out, Mm-hmm. This Hujar. Right. Like, you're the one who can't, like, in real life. You're the one who gave the order. Well, or he's the one, the one who did her. it. That's and in, meant, yeah. But in this, because I, I think it was for the storytelling, you know, element, because 
Goth is kind of the primary villain character. They had him give the order. Yeah. Um, and instead of barracks falling, it was, she was like, Hey, you're trying to build this bridge and you're not doing it right. And I think like, there's a quote in the movie where she's like, I'm just trying to do my job. Like I, th- th- this is what I do. And yeah, fragile masculinity and anti-Semitism, they can't take being corrected or told otherwise. And so they just kill her. Yeah. Which actually, when you learn what actually happened to her, like, it's not that far off. It, it's not that far off, but the movie is actually a little more sanitized in yeah. its own way. So Diana was a remarkable woman, but her story could be shared by so many who suffered and died during the Holocaust. Her representation in such a famous movie has shown a spotlight Diana as an individual, but one of the reasons I want to tell her story is because I think it's important that we acknowledge that her story and her fate were not unique. And I, I do think it's really cool that Schindler's List was able to highlight, you know, real people who, who suffered and died under the Nazis in the movie. Yeah. Because, um, again, I've never seen the movie. I have no desire to see it. Um, but, yeah, I saw this listicle. And I was like, oh, my God, she, like, yeah, wow, I didn't know that was a real person. But Diana character in that movie is kind of a stand-in for a lot of other people it's not only a stand-in for the real diana but you know all these other people who were innocently killed but her real story is also kind of a stand-in for that because there's so many of these stories we're not going to know about and i only found out about diana because she was featured in a movie right like that's i don't know i just i thought that was like really cool it was kind of a kismet thing um and yeah her, her story is unfortunately not unique, but that is Diana Ryder, architect of the angels. Because she's an angel and she's I, perfect. No, I, I understand. And I'm not crying. You're crying. <sighs> By the way, uh, on a lighter note. <laughs> no, so, you know, I'm, I'm uh, so aprendiendo español. Um, I was, I get a lot of like Spanish pages that are suggested to me now because I changed my phone language to Spanish at one point and there was there was like I don't know it was some kind of meme that was like emotional and one of the comments it was in Spanish and I and just like from the context and knowing most of the words I was like oh my god this is Spanish for I'm not crying you're crying <laughs> and I I translated it and I'm like oh my god I was able to read it and I've I just that's hilarious. I'm though. like, the Spanish language gets me. <laughs> it sees me. I think it was like, no estoy lloviendo. Because lloviendo is like raining, but it was like, lloviendo, some, something like, um, no estoy crying. Tu estás crying. It was, it made yeah. me really happy. I was like, oh, I know it's such a basic thing, but just being able to see that and immediately know what it said made me very excited. And then the fact it was like my favorite thing to say. <laughs> but yeah. Should we take an ad break? Should we take an ad break yeah. for mental health? Yeah. Mental, mental health, health ad break. Mental ad break. Health. Okay. Thank you. Okay, bye. Hey guys, we know times have been tough lately for all of us. 
And during hard times, it can be difficult if you don't have anyone to talk to or it can be hard to talk about certain topics. Being alone with your thoughts can be isolating. This is why we are sponsored by BetterHelp. BetterHelp offers licensed therapists who are trained to listen to and help you. Talk to your therapist in a private online environment at your convenience. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Thank goodness. There is a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's 20,000 plus therapist network that gives you access to the help that may not be available in your area. You just fill out a questionnaire to help assess your specific needs, and then you get matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. That is Amazon fast. Then you schedule secure video and phone sessions. Plus, you can exchange unlimited messages, and everything you share is completely confidential, just like with an in-person therapist. You can request a new therapist at any time at no additional charges. If you want to talk to someone about your mental health, you can get a 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash herstory. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash herstory. So Kelly, who are you whining about today? And please tell me it's a Nazi free story. It is a Nazi free story. Yes. Yay. Yay. Along with along with parabens and preservatives, you should cut Nazis out of your diet. Actually, I don't know what parabens are. I just people told me they're bad. So now I'm like, I am just using the buzzwords. I'm like, I'm using the buzzwords like love and friendship and wine. Those are the buzzwords and weed. Buzzwords. I thought we were talking about weed. I mean, we could be talking about weed. Weed might actually, I mean, I will never leave your house. Like if I got high right now, I would not leave your house. And hey, I can, we can, we could. We could totally get stoned because it's legal in Minnesota now recreationally Yep, as of August, which is very exciting because it should just be more accessible to people and we should decriminalize it and stop like using yeah. cannabis to persecute black people and other people. Yeah. Other people of color. I mean, just everyone in general, but like, yeah, disproportionately, disproportionately. Yes. Uh, okay. I am whining about Gabriella Mistral. Mistral? Mistral. I love oh that is a sexy name. I know. Mistral. That sounds like okay. Is she a witch? Because no. like the good witch mistral. Like it sounds yeah. so witchy and ooh, I've got chills. I'm ready for this. Let's do it. So Gabriella was born in Vicuna, Chile. Chile. Uh, Chile, Chile on April 7th, 1889. But she would grow up in Mont- Monte Grande in the Andean or an Andean village, you know, in the Andes, in the Andes, Andes adjacent, where she attended a primary school taught by her elder sister, Emelina Molina. Wait, Emelina Molina. <laughs> that is my new fake bar name. Emelina Molina. I love that name. Emelina Molina. Also, my mom used to call me Emelina sometimes when I was little. Emelina is a pretty name. She'd be like, Emelina. When when she wasn't mad, but when she was mad. Emily Jean. Oh, fuck. If my mom uses my middle name, I know I'm, I'm. The fact. trouble. 
I um, should have died so many times. I could tell my mom was mad when she would start saying the wrong name. Oh, and God. She would just kind of like cycle through, through the children. It was great. Matt, Lindsay, d- d- kill it. God, God damn it. Damn it. Yeah, yep. exactly. I sometimes do. Okay, I sometimes do that with my dogs. Oh, like, too. I'll yell the wrong name. And then it's like, oh, I'm sorry I wasn't yelling at you, but you get your fucking ass over exactly. here, you little shit. Oh, I've done that. <laughs> I always just feel bad because, like, especially Max, my runty one, he looks at me and he's like, mother. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, what have I done to ensue your ire? It's not you, Max. It's almost never you. Yeah, exactly. He's a good boy. So Gabriella obviously had a lot of respect for her sister and... um Her sister's job would kind of lead her to her own job in the future. Um, Her father was a man named Juan uh, Geronimo Godet Villanueva, which... Juan Geronimo Godoy, sorry, Villanueva. Villanueva. Yeah. If that's not like a Spanish soap opera name. Oh my God. He He is the wealthy, sexy vineyard owner who's widowed and he's just looking for love and then there's the rich lady who just wants him for his money or there's the evil lady who wants him for his money and she's a bruja and then there's the lady who's like no I genuinely love you but he doesn't notice her because he's so overcome with his grief from his widow no this one's just an asshole Uh, he was a school teacher so he was a villain yeah oh he was the bruja he was the bruja 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 do we do we Uh, gender witch I think it'd be because I know Bruja is witch, but that's always like in the feminine. Yeah, I think it would be masculinized. I don't know. Dom Brujo. Yeah. Um, So he was a school teacher, but he left the family when Gabriella was only three years old and would die alone and estranged from his family in 1911. Suck it, dude. Um, Due to the the. Her father leaving quite early in her life. Poverty was a constant present in Gabriella's uh, early life. And at the age of 15, she would start supporting herself and her mother, who was named uh, Petronila Alcayaga. Petronia? Um, which I love that name, too. I do like that. Who I like the name Petra. Yeah. Like Petronia. It's like this extra little, like... Yeah. So her mother was a seamstress and um, Gabriella would take up working as a teacher's age in Campania Baja, which is a seaside town um, near La Serena, Chile. Ooh. Um, During this time, Gabriella would also publish some short poems. Um, These included poems called Dreams, Intimate Letter, and By the Sea. Um, those are the English translations because I didn't want to just completely butcher the <laughs> Spanish language. Um, by the sea, da 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 da. I don't know. Not the, isn't there Sweeney a song John. like "By the Sea"? Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Oh, by the sea, we are something and laughing. By the sea, eating people's bodies. <laughs> It's been a minute since I've seen Sweeney Todd, but oh, I think you funny. get the gist. So all of these poems were published in local newspapers using different pseudonyms or variations of her name. Oh. Um, were, were the pseudonyms masculinized at all? I don't know. 
Okay. I, I, don't, I just, I don't believe so, okay. but I don't know. I just know that that has been a thing in the past where, you know, women authors have published under masculine pseudonyms to get their work published because yeah. people wouldn't publish something written by a woman. Yeah. Cool. Um, during this time and during most of her adolescence, she realized that there was a strict scarcity of trained teachers particularly in these rural areas that she was growing up in. Mm -hmm. Um, And basically she noticed that anyone that was willing to work could find a job as a teacher. Like it didn't matter if you were trained or not. Oh, kind of like the way that we used to staff uh, mental hospitals or there it's like, Oh, you're willing to fucking be here. Yeah. You can be a sociopath and have a job. Yep. And she also noticed that particularly young women tend, tended to face not being able to access good schools if they didn't have political or social connections. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and Gabriella faced this herself. She was rejected from the normal school without explanation, which she would later attribute to the chaplain, the school's chaplain, Father Ignacio Mon. Manazaga, who was aware that she was publishing stuff, um, particularly stuff advocating for educational reform and increased access to schools. And so she thinks he like knew that was her and was like, no, I'm not allowing you into my school. So maybe that's why she was publishing under pseudonyms. Yeah, that, that is part of it. I'll get I get into that also, a little bit later. How fucked up is that? That's like she's like advocating for better education for women. And then Father Ignacio's over here like, I took that personally. Right. Not <laughs> even just women, but like poor people and yeah. people from rural areas as well. So although her well, fo- as we all know, Jesus fucking hated poor people. Could not right. stand them. Never advocated for yeah. them. <laughs> never started flipping tables in a corrupt <clears throat> capitalist market. Never. Never. So although her formal education would end in 1900, like I said, she secured teaching aid positions and several teaching positions with the help of her older sister, Emelina. Um, and I mean, because obviously Emelina was basically the one who taught her most of her yeah. life. Um, she would continue pub- publishing, 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 publishing in local publishing. and national newspapers. Um, she was also willing to relocate to teach. So she would advance from one teaching position to another. And she basically just like. Kind of moved her way up and around. Yeah. Um, Between 1906 and 1912, she would teach at several schools, generally near Las Serena, um, which is kind of where she was from. Um, But in 1912, she began working at a high school in Los Andes, where she would remain for the next six years. Nice. Yes. So during this time and all of the, the hopping around, she would meet a man named Romelio Ureta, who was a railway worker and, like, the first love of her life. Mm. Sadly, he would take his own life a oh, few, just, no! just a few years later. Ugh. And shortly after that, the next person she would fall in love with would marry someone else. God damn. Fucking Gabriella cannot catch a break here. Yeah. I was just about to be like, mm, railroad worker. Right? Hangs around trains. I don't know, doing train shit like yeah, i was yeah. about to go all full full fucking like romance I just novel like kept going and kelly's like, nope. like do not sexualize this poor man he does complete so su- he does die by yep. suicide we need to just not and i'm like yep. oh no these heartbreaks um 
like deeply obviously affected Gabriella and a lot of her poetry from this time period, including the one that would start gaining her like more recognition were published during this time. One of them was called the sonnets on death. Oh my, <laughs> she's going through her emo phase. Yeah, she's, she's I'm, struggling. Okay. Here's the thing. I, I do not love what happened, but I'm loving this like exploration for her. Yes. <laughs> Um, to protect her job in particular, um, she used a pen name again, fearing the consequences of revealing her true identity. She would win first prize in a national literary contest called Juegos Flores, which is held in Santiago, the capital of Chile. Um, Santiago, Chile. Yeah. I know that song. Exactly. I know that song. Um, and she gained a lot of... Um, a claim for exploring themes of death and life more broadly than a lot of the previous Latin American poets. So she was really expanding not only her, her own poetic horizons, but like the poetic horizons of their readers as well. So wait, did you say that the competition was called Hugo's Flores? Yeah. Flor- for Florales. Florales. Yeah. Fruit juices or not flower juices? Yep, apparently. Oh, cool! It sounds a lot better in Spanish. Yep. <laughs> Maybe it was like flower nectar. That's Maybe. how they meant it. Do not know. Flower juice by Emily. Um. So a lot of what I'm going to talk about coming up is mostly about her writing because while Gabriella had passionate friendships with both men and women. Mainly just friendships, as far as we know. I get into that later. Like, true friendships. Either way. Okay. okay. Um, she kept a lot of her emotional life private. So, even with the men or women, like, we, there's not a lot known about her private, private life. And, like, her romantic leanings. Yeah. And, other okay. than those, like, first two big loves of her life. Yeah. Well, and even the second one, we don't know if it was a man or a woman. It just said the second person she fell in love with. Oh. The first one was a man. Yeah. The second one, there was no, like, Well, I thought you said he married someone else. Oh, that's true. I, I, I said they, they got married. Oh, okay. So you're right. It could he. have been. Um, wow. That's, that's yep. cool. So since June 1908, Gabriella has been using the pen name Gabriella Mistral. So that's not actually her real name. That's just what she goes by mm-hmm. and that's what I call her because that's what everything calls her that, that um, that's her that's her known that's who she's known as yeah and that and that's the name she won the Hugos Florales at um her given name is actually Lu- Lucilia Godoy which is not Godoy. I, like, I like Lucilia Godoy, but like I'm like yeah Gabriella Mistral is a much better name it's so witchy I do love the name Lucia yeah, that's gorgeous. So there, there is some speculation about what she may have constructed her pseudonym from. Some say it's the names of her two favorite poets, um, Gabrielle de Annunzio and Frederick Mistal, or potentially a combination of the Archangel Gabriel and the Mistral Wind of Provence. Ooh. I hope she just like she was like found a baby fun. book that yeah. had like some names highlighted and picked from that, and then everyone's like looking for this deeper meaning, and she's like, "Yeah, totally. Yeah, it has. It's so meaningful. It's so deep. Like right. my pen name's just gonna be Emelina Molina now because it rhymes and it's a great name. Done. Right. Oh well, it's a tribute to. No, it's not. 
It's not. It's a cool name. It's fun to say. <laughs> it's just fun, okay? Just let me enjoy things. Just like you may have been pronouncing a town name wrong and... Just let me love Drojo, bitch. Yeah, exactly. So um, in 1918, Pedro Aguirre Cerda, the, the minister of education at the time, and the man who would become future president of Chile, oh, um, shit. would appoint her the director of the Sarah Braun uh, High School. Oh, shit. In Puente Arenas. Um, she would then subsequently move a few more places, eventually landing in the capital, Santiago. Um and defeating a candidate associated with the radical party to become the director of Santiago's high school number six, the country's newest and most prestigious girls' school. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Like she's moving on up. Um, there was on some. Up, moving on up to the Andy side. There was some controversy, controversy surrounding her nomination for that position. Um, I couldn't find what it was, which was interesting. But basically, due to that controversy, controversy, it influenced her decision to accept an invitation to work in Mexico after only working at the school for a year. She would work under Mexico's Minister of Education um, and contribute to the nation's plan to reform libraries and schools and establish a national education system. So like wow big things i love that this is something that she was kind of advocating for early on and in it's not Chile, that she in mexico yeah. like recognizes it and is like no come come help us right but i like that she never even though like like i i think sometimes when we hear these stories it's like this is the one thing that she really locked on to and worked on it for her whole life it's like she's still working on it but like you know just be I don't know. I, I just think it's cool that like it, she, all this other hard work that she's putting in is paying off and putting her in the position where she can really enact change now for this issue right. that she holds closely. Yeah. And so she's doing that and she's also um, still writing. Yes, I think. Yeah. Dory, I think Dory farted. Dory farted. It smells really bad. Yeah. Sorry. I was just. I Okay. I was like, is Dory still in the room? Because like, no offense, Kelly, but you, like, I know what your farts smell like. And it's not this. No, this, this is, is bad. not it. And oh my God, Dory. I'm so glad she didn't She's fart during my story. Sleeping. Can you fucking imagine? <laughs> oh God. Um... So during this time, while she's doing all these great things in Mexico, she's also starting to gain international rec recognition for various pieces in journalism, public speaking, and publication of her work. Um, one of her works was Desolacion in New York, uh, Desolacions, which is desolation. Mm -hmm. She would also later publish Lectures para Mujeres, so Reading for Women, and, which was a collection of prose and verses celebrating girls' education. Um, this book featured not only her own writing, but works by other Latin American and European female writers. I love that. Um, so back to Desola Desolation. Um, this was her debut book. So she wrote a book. Um and it was published with the help of the director of the Hispanic Institute of New York. And this is a collection of her poems, which explored themes of motherhood, religion, nature, morality, and love of children. What Around what year is this? 1922. Okay, that's super cool. 
Yeah, it's not common for women to publish books at this time. But also, this is this is in New York, and my story for next week, yeah, also takes place in New York. And it focuses on a, a Puerto Rican woman, and it's that's cool. I'm like, oh my god, did they like cross paths potentially? One hundred percent. Her personal sor- sorrows are also reflected in these poems, solidifying her international reputation. Um, and she really was a departure from the, the modern trend of most Latin American poets at this time. And it was hailed by critics as straightforward yet simplistic. Okay. In a good way. I, no, 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 no. And I don't think that sounds like an insult, but it sounds redundant. Straightforward, but simplistic. It's yeah. like, aren't those, don't those things kind of go hand in hand? Yeah. Like to be straightforward, you can't be too complicated. To be simplistic, you have to be, I don't know. But yeah, no, good for her. After two years in Mexico, um, Gabriela would begin traveling again because I, th- I feel like she must love to travel because she does it a lot. But she would travel to Washington, D.C., where she would address the Pan-American Union. So that's a big deal. Wow. I, I, I'm pretty sure it was on education. And then she would continue her journey going to New York and then over to Europe. When she was in Spain, she would publish a book called, or not a book, I mean, it is a book, technically. Like a collection of poems. Uh, yeah, it's, it was called Tenderness, and it was actually a collection of lullabies oh. and stuff like that intended for children, parents, and other poets. That's so cute. So that's really nice. I love that. She would return to Chile in 1925, formally retiring from the country's education system and receiving a pension, which was nice. Good. Um, She's earned it. Right. And at this time, like uh, right about the time she was um, arriving, the legislature granted the demands of the teachers union, um, stipulating that only university trained teachers could be appointed in schools. I mean, that's kind of what she wanted, but it's like also you need to let the women get that education because like Father Ignacio back in the day was like, ew, no. Right. So despite the fact that Gabriella never received formal education beyond like grade school, she did receive the academic title of Spanish professor from the University of Chile, um, which highlighted the fact that she had remarkable dedication to self-education, was super intellectual and just was just like super well known and like well read. Well, she she had done the real life work exactly to earn that kind of designation. <laughs> I hope she took her diploma and went to Father Ignacio's grave and she's like, "Hey, bud, I just like that. What's up, Padre? Check this shit out. I just like that the country's like okay, only university trained teachers can teach, and then they were like, oh, and here here's your university, yeah." Like, sanctioned title yeah i just love that well i it would look really bad for them i think if it was like oh yeah she's like one of our our most prominent teachers and she legally cannot teach in our country (laughs) so pablo neruda um who was chile's second nobel prize laureate in literature um would meet gabriella when she would relocate to his hometown of temuco or temuco um and they would become really, really good friends. And she would introduce him to her poetry and would recommend readings. And they they had like a lifelong friendship between the two of them, which I think is very, very nice. Um, however, her international stature made it unlikely that she would remain in Chile because she was like, I have work to do. Yeah. Um, 
So she was invited to represent Latin America in an, in the newly formed Institute for Intellectual Cooperation within the League of Nations. Wow. So she went um, and did that and would relocate to France, effectively becoming an exile for the rest of her life. She basically like left Chile and never went back. Like they, I don't know, like a lot of the articles I was reading about like called it exile, but I'm like, I don't. If it was exile, it was self-imposed. Like, Chile yeah. never, like, was like, you need to leave. I was going to say, exile is when they send you away and say you cannot come back. Right. Like, and a self-imposed exile would be like, I'm leaving and I'm not coming back. But right. it kind of sounds like she just moved to France and was like, I fucking dig this shit. Baguettes? Hell yes. Right. Um. So she would originally, or would initially make a living doing other things through journalism and giving lectures. She would travel through the United States, Latin America, um, and all over giving different lectures on um, education. She would also temporarily reside in Italy um, to attend conferences throughout Europe and the Americas. She would hold a visiting professor. 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 Professor, she, she published. Jesus, she published her professorship. It's, it's when there's a bunch of S's in a I row know. that my brain can't do it. Um, Again, we are both entirely too sober to be reading right now. Yeah, so I'm she, a much better reader when I'm drunk. <laughs> she would be a visiting professor at Barnard College, which is part of Columbia University, which is mm-hmm. a big deal. Um, BFD would also briefly work at Middlebury College and Vassar, which again, Jesus. Vassar's a big name. If I've heard of the college. It's a big deal because I've yeah. heard of nothing. And would give multiple conferences at the University of Puerto Puerto Rico. So that's pretty cool. Nice. Um, um, she would also work as a console. Um, I'm not actually sure what that meant. Like a gaming console? No. Like, um, like I think it's a consultant. Oh, like council? C-O-N-S-U-L. Console, um, like a consulate, like oh, okay. Basically, like you're the assigned person for your country to go and speak at other oh, countries. Okay, a con- a consulate. Okay, okay. And apparently, I see. it's actually just consul. Consulate is the name of the building. Oh, um, but so she would serve as consul from 1932 until her death and work in various locations such as Naples, Madrid, Lisbon. On and on and on. Yada, yada, yada. Places. Um, Many places. While she was serving as consul in Madrid, she would um, have several interactions again. Um, She would be living in the same city again with um, Pablo Neruda. And so, like, they got to hang out a bunch. I ship it. And then um, she was among one of the early writers to recognize the importance and originality of his work. Um, because she had known him for so long. Yeah. Um, so she knew him before he was a poet, oh, poet laureate. okay, okay. I didn't realize that. I thought he was already a poet laureate. No, he was like a high schooler when she first met him. Oh, my. Oh, 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 okay. So maybe I do not ship this. I'm oh, you're, sorry. You're shipping like a romantic relationship. Yes. No, they're like literally just BFFs. They're BFFs and also he's... I assume quite like, a bit younger yeah, he, than her. She was like a mentor yeah. and, and then BFFs Okay, okay. Because yeah, I thought he was a poet laureate when they met and no. then you're like, she was like Sorry. one of the first people to realize he was awesome even though he was already a fucking poet laureate. Right. <laughs> okay, I see, I see. 
Um, she would continue publishing hundreds of articles in magazines and newspapers throughout the Spanish speaking world. She would have a lot of notable confidants, such as Eduardo Santos, who was the president of Colombia, and all of the elected presidents of Chile between 1922 and her death. Like, she would just talk with them a lot. That's awesome. And that's why I'm like, I don't think exile is the right word. Yeah, it doesn't. I think she just ended up taking jobs that kept her away from Chile. Yeah, but it doesn't sound like she had any hard feelings against Chile. Or Chile. Chile. And Chile didn't have any Um, issues with her. It was just kind of like a, she never came back. She lived out the rest of her life outside of Chile. Um, She was also a notable confidant of of Eleanor Roosevelt. Shut the front door. Okay, she was definitely queer. Just say, I'm just... She definitely We don't know. Is we the thing. don't know, but that but doesn't no, I talk mean about we it can't later. wildly like, We literally speculate. don't know. No, I understand that, but because we don't know, like I think the I think the instinct is to default to so like, well, if we don't know, she must have been straight. No, not not necessarily, yeah. but also Eleanor Roosevelt, like come was on. A big, yeah. She was she's she's a queer icon. So her second major volume of poetry, Tala, was published in 1938 when she was residing in Buenos Aires. Um, the proceeds from this sale were dedicated to the children or orphaned by the Spanish Civil War. Oh, my God. And this, she wrote all those lullabies, yeah. too. And now they're super sad because they're being sung to orphans. This volume contains a lot of poems that celebrate the customs and folklore of Latin America and the Mediterranean Europe. Um really embracing her identification as a European Bosque indigenous Amera Indian. That's what she would call herself. Mm-hmm. So she's like, I'm all of these things. Yeah. Um, she's a tapestry of beauty and heritage um, and poems. Sadly, while she was out traveling, she would lose another family member to completing suicide. Her 17 year old nephew, Juan Miguel Godoy, whom she considered a son and called Yin Yin, which is very Yin Yin, um, would take his life. And the grief from this loss, along with um, everything else, the, the mounting tensions of World War II and the Cold War in Europe and everything else, are really reflected in her last volume of published poetry. Just like this uh, profound sadness. Yeah. Um, Oh, Gabriella. Yeah. So Lagar is the last, the last like volume of poetry she published um, in 1954. Um, it was edited by a woman named Doris Dana or Dana. Um, and she would edit and publish the, the final thing called Poma de Chile um, posthumously in 1967. So after Gabriella passed. Um, and like I said, this um, de- de- depicts the poet's ret- um, This includes a depiction of the poet's return to Chile after death, mm-hmm. accompanied by an Indian boy from the At- At- Atacama Desert and an Andean deer. This collection of poetry foreshadows the interest in objective description and revision of the epic tradition that would emerge among poets um, that would read a lot of Gabriella's work. Oh, So... Before she passed, because we're still a few years out from that. Yeah. Um, in 1945, Gabriella would become the first Latin American and the fifth woman to receive the Nobel Prize in Literature. Damn! So King Gustav of Sweden presented her with the award in person on December 10th, 1945. So 
That's pretty cool. She would also, in 1951, be awarded national liter- the National Literature Prize in Chile. Um, however, in her later years, her travel would be limited and because she was pretty sick. Mm-hmm. And she would reside in the town of Roslyn, New York, and then would transfer to Hampstead, New York, where she would die from pancreatic cancer on January 10th, 1957, at the age of 67 years old. God. Like, she lived through so much life because (laughs) she she was... She lived through, what, World War I, World War II, the Cold War, the Spanish uh, Civil War. Like... Oh, yeah. She's fighting for, you know, better education for women in her own country. Like, that's... Like, I, I think we're going to be able to look back and be like, wow, we witnessed a lot of shit. Yeah. But I think it's I, I think it's harder for us to recognize that because we're living in it. But to look back at these historical figures and be like, oh, my God, the, what they witnessed, what they yeah. were alive for is yep. incredible. So after she'd passed, um, her remains were returned to Chile nine days after. And the Chilean government declared three days of national mourning with hundreds of thousands of people coming to pay their respects. Oh, see, they didn't exile her. They loved her. Right. So throughout her life, uh, Gabriella would write and publish more than 800 essays, several, obviously, as I talked about, books of poems. She was also a renowned correspondent and a highly regarded speaker, both in person and in on radio broadcasts. One of the most widely quoted, at least in English, um, parts of a poem is called His Name is Today. And this is what this is what it says. It says, we are guilty of many errors and many faults, but our worst crime is abandoning the children, neglecting the fountain of life. Many of the things we need can wait. The child cannot. Right now is the time his bones are being formed, his blood is being made, and his senses are being developed. To him, we cannot answer tomorrow. His name is today. I love that. Yeah. And I feel like I want to scream that at anyone who's like, why should my taxes go to schools? I don't have kids. Or like people bitching about like paying teachers more or like... I'm sorry, do you want our country to be made up of fucking idiots? Do you want our children to be unsupported? Because schools are not just places of education. They are resource centers. They are places where children may, that that might be the only place a child is fed and we cannot neglect our children. Because even if it's not your kids specifically, they are all of our kids. Yeah. And their names are today. Yeah. Oh, I love that. She's the she's the poet for today. Right. I so, love it. So sadly, Gabrielle's legacy was tainted a little bit during the 1970s and 80s during the milita- military dictatorship of General Augusto Pinchet in Chile. Um, he appropriated Gab- Gabriella's image, portraying her as a symbol of submission to authority and social order. Literally not what she did. Right. Um, she did the opposite with an with a grade school education. Right. Oh, my God. Um, there was an author of the time named Licia Foyomate, and she challenged the traditional views of Gabriella as a saint-like celibate and suffering heterosexual woman, suggesting that she perhaps was a lesbian instead. Um, in 2007, after the death of Gabriella's alleged last romantic partner, Doris Dana, who was the person that published her last book. Mm-hmm. Her archive was discovered containing letters exchanged, what appeared to be letters exchanged between Gabriella and various occasional female lovers. 
The publication of these letters is in a book called Nina Arante, which was published in 2007. It was edited by Pedro Pablo Zegers, supported by the notion of a long-lasting relationship between Gabriella and Dana in Gabriella's final years. Um, the letters were eventually translated into English and published by the University of New Mexico in 2018. Despite these claims, Doris... Um, who was around 31 years younger than Gabriella, explicitly denied in her final interview that their relationship was ever romantic or erotic, mm-hmm. describing it as a stepmother and stepdaughter. Um, Dana also denied being a lesbian and expressed skepticism of Gabriella's sexual orientation as well. Okay. Well, and, you know, I, I, th- I think it's important. Okay, this is like a double-edged sword because obviously someone's sexuality does not have to influence like who we, right. who they are, how we think of them. But at the same time, because queer erasure is such an issue, it's important to yeah. acknowledge like, and celebrate LGBTQ plus figures. But in this case, you know, we're, we're really speculating on behalf of someone who cannot right. answer and for themselves. Like if the letters truly show like what appears to be between Gabriella and her lovers. Like, yeah, we, we may be able to assume either she was a lesbian or even bisexual or, or pansexual or, or whatever. Yeah. Cause it's a spectrum and labels are not required on that spectrum. Right. Either. And yeah, maybe Doris wasn't a partner, but that doesn't, yeah, it doesn't mean she yeah. didn't have female lovers or any, like it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. So yeah, her sexuality is a big question mark because she was, even though she was such a huge public figure, mm-hmm. she was incredibly private. Yeah. Well, and then the other issue um, or the other element in this is that it was not safe. Right. Oh, to yeah. To come out. I mean, there, there it, it's still a risk to come out today. Um, and so she is this public figure. And I wonder if she had, like, come out as being LGBTQ+, like, if how that would have affected her life, her career, her ability to help others. Yeah. You know? Well, and it could just be, you know, she had such sad things happen. Mm-hmm. Like her dad left her family and then died estranged. Her, the first two people she fell in love with, one took his own life and then one got married. Mm-hmm. Like maybe she was just like, you know what? No, I'm, I'm done. Like I don't, yeah, I don't want to deal with this. Yeah, I mean, she could have even been on the arrow spectrum. Right, exactly. Like, like, we will never know. Or ace, excuse me. Like, you know, that just... And we, we'll never know. And I think it's important to acknowledge um, that she that she could be uh, yeah. an LGBTQ plus figure. Because, again, representation is important. But it doesn't impact... The rest of the story. It, it, it doesn't add to or take away from anything that she's done. Because... No. And she did all of this with a grade school education from her sister. Yep. Like, this is so incredible to me. Like, we love those stories of someone kind of, you know, there's the American myth of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps and blah, 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 blah. It's like, here's someone who fucking did it. Right. And put good into the world. Yeah. And on April 7th, 2015, um, Google commemorated Gabriella's 126th birthday um, with a Google Doodle. I'm I'm looking it up right now. Aw. I like that. Yeah, it's kind of like a like a sepia tone uh watercolor and her head is the first O in Google. The second one, uh Dame le Mo- what does it say? 
Dame la Manoe Danzaremos. And yeah, Dame la Manoe me amarás. She was the first and remains the only Latin American woman to win the Nobel Prize in Literature. Seriously? That's what it says. That doesn't seem like it could be correct. Like, I, I believe you, but statistically, that is insane. Like, we just... I'm, we, I'm curious wow. if that was as of 2015. Yeah. Because I know in the last few years, women have won some. But I don't know if they've been. Oh, that's one of her lullabies. It's Dame la mano y dan. They're they're lyrics to one of her lullabies. It's Dame la mano. And the lyric is Dame la mano y danzaremos. Dame la mano y me amar. Amaras, como una sola flor seremos, como una flor y nada más. I want to see what that, I want to try to figure out what it is in English. Oh, wow, it's really long. Oh, give me your hand and we will dance. Give me your hand and you will love me. That's what the Aww. first two lines are. I'm like, mano is hand, because mano, lavate las manos is wash your hands. Aww. Dame la mano y danzaremos, Kelly. So as of 2023, yeah, she is the only Latin American female to win a Nobel Prize in literature. That's insane. That is insane. I mean, like, good for her, but that is so fucking crazy. Well, I also think there's, like, a difference, because isn't there, like, a poet laureate and then there's like the nobel prize of literature which i think well, yeah, are poet, different poet laureate is different um because a the, the, the poet laureate can be designated i think by geographic location like rochester has a poet laureate minnesota has a poet laureate um the united states has a poet laureate um so yeah gabrielle mistral is the only latin american author she was the first Latin American author ever to win as a woman, and she remains the only Latin American woman to ever have won. And Toni Morrison is the only black woman ever recognized to date. Wow. In, in the Nobel Prize of Literature. Wow. Oh, my Almost fucking every, God. Almost everyone else. Nearly half of the total awards have gone to women in the last 18 years, mm-hmm. but most of them are European. Yeah. Well... Thank you so much for sharing her story. And I'm not going to like try to rush you, but your dog farted again. And I, she might be dying. I might be dying. Um, but She's I just think, old, I think we should like wrap this up so I can get out of this, this confined space with your dog's fart. So okay. Kelly, what are you thankful for? I am thankful for having a job and a husband and a life that I could take two days off of work because I felt like I was dying um, due to sickness. And it like everyone was really gracious. Everyone was basically like, take care of yourself. Do you like don't worry about it? Justin went and got me soup and muffins, which Aww. was very nice. Um, yeah. What are you thankful for? Um, well, I'm very thankful for you for watching my dogs 
for like five days while I went to Voyagers National Park, which was incredible. And I loved every second of it. And I got to swim and I got to jump off a boat and I got to, I got to swim naked and there was some naked paddle boarding, not done by me, but a friend, you know who you are and I love you. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was Man, a really- I am not, I, one, I don't, I don't know if I have a close enough group of friends that I would naked, naked paddle board around. You would naked paddle board around It would me. have to be all women. Um, okay. What about your husband if he was there? Yeah. But like, was your fella the only male there? No. Exactly. Okay. Well, I, here's the thing. I do not need Your friend is braver than I am. Well, she, okay. That, that she's braver than all of us. She's a bad bitch. hundred percent. But no, it was, it was a lot of fun, but I was, I was really, uh, I'm really grateful to you, Kelly, for watching my dogs because I didn't have to worry about like, oh my God, are they like upset? Are they stressed? Are they, I'm like, no, they are living their best lives. They are curled up on a couch or under a blanket. They're playing with pugs. They're, they're getting love. They're fine. Yep. So I really appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Winding About Herstory that has been thoroughly baptized by Dory's Farts. Thank you so, so much. Please like us on Facebook at Winding About Herstory, Instagram at WAHPAD. Our website is windingaboutherstory.com where you can find a link to all of our social media as well as our Buy Me a Coffee where you can buy us a bottle of wine for $5. It's a one-time payment. Or you can donate for as little as $1 a month and get some bonus stuff on Patreon. Bonus! We also have some pretty sweet merch you can check out and buy if you want. And please rate us five stars wherever you listen and give us all of the warm, fuzzy feelings. We're going to need it in the upcoming winter. Actually, that's what's going to keep me warm throughout exactly. this winter. That's what's going to keep me alive. We're just going to continuously read five-star reviews yes. on a loop. And our one-star review that makes us giggle. Actually, you know what I should do? I should do, like, a sexy ASMR recording of all of our five-star reviews, put it on a track, and then, like, we can just listen to it. Yeah. And like, if you're looking for a serious lecture on history, this is not the podcast for you. That's a one star review. That's our one star review, review, and I love it. You can get that on merch. Yep, I made it merch because not it, a serious history podcast. This is super. I love it so much. I'm like, we never pretended to be. We are baptized in dog farts, right? Well, and like wine is in the title. <laughs> wine. We are whining. Man. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Wine About Herstory. I'm Emily. I'm Kelly. Have an empowered day, y'all. Bye. Bye. Look at your dog. She just like doesn't even care. No, she she's doesn't sleeping. even care about the chemical warfare that she <laughs> is putting on us. She's like, I can't smell it. I have a smoosh nose. She does. Smoosh nose. God damn it, Dory.